Welcome to Tom Reads Books, the podcast where, whatever you're doing, I take you on an adventure through some of literature's most loved treasures. If you do enjoy the podcast, make sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and also check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash tomreadsbooks, where I release two exclusive episodes every week of a completely different book, full audiobook versions of all books read, and you can help choose future books for me to read. Now, though, I'd like to invite you to settle in. Relax. And let me tell you a story. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 5 A letter, edged with black, announced the day of my master's return. Isabella was dead, and he wrote to bid me to get mourning for his daughter and arrange a room and other accommodations for his youthful nephew. Catherine ran wild with joy at the idea of welcoming her father back and indulged most sanguine anticipations of the innumerable excellencies of her real cousin. The evening of their expected arrival came. Since early morning she had been busy ordering her own small affairs, and now attired in her new black frock, poor thing. Her aunt's death impressed her with no definite sorrow. She obliged me, by consistent worrying, to walk with her down through the grounds to meet them. Linton is just six months younger than I am, she chatted as we strolled leisurely over the swells and hollows of mossy turf under shadow of the trees. How delightful it will be to have him for a playfellow. Aunt Isabella sent Papa a beautiful lock of his hair. It was lighter than mine, more flaxen and quite as fine. I have it carefully preserved in a little glass box, and I've often thought what a pleasure it would be to see its owner. Oh, I am happy, and Papa, dear, dear Papa. Come, Ellen, let us run, come, run. She ran and returned and ran again, many times before my sober footprints reached the gate, and then she seated herself on the grassy bank beside the path and tried to wait patiently, but that was impossible. She couldn't be still a minute. How long they are, she exclaimed. Ah, I see some dust on the road. They're coming. No, when will they be here? May we not go a little way? Half a mile, Ellen, only just half a mile. Do say yes to that clump of birches at the turn. I refused staunchly, and at length her suspense was ended. The travelling carriage rolled into sight. Miss Cathy shrieked and stretched out her arms as soon as she caught her father's face looking from the window. He descended, nearly as eager as herself, and a considerable interval elapsed ere they had a thought to spare for any but themselves. While they exchanged caresses, I took a peep into sea after Linton. He was asleep in a corner, wrapped in a warm fur-lined cloak as if it had been winter. A pale, delicate, effeminate boy, who might have been taken for my master's younger brother, so strong was the resemblance, 
but there was a sickly peevishness in his aspect that Edgar Linton never had. The latter saw me looking, and having shaken hands, advised me to close the door and leave him undisturbed, for the journey had fatigued him. Cathy would fain have taken one glance, but her father told her to come on, and they walked together up the park while I hastened before to prepare the servants. Now, darling, said Mr. Linton, addressing his daughter as they halted at the bottom of the footsteps, your cousin is not so strong or so merry as you are, and he has lost his mother, remember, a very short time since. Therefore, don't expect him to play and run about with you directly, and don't harass him much by talking. Let him be quiet this evening, at least, will you? Yes, yes, papa, answered Catherine. But I do want to see him, and he hasn't once looked out. The carriage stopped, and the sleeper, being roused, was lifted to the ground by his uncle. This is your cousin Cathy, Linton, he said, putting their little hands together. She's fond of you already, and mind you don't grieve her by crying tonight. Try to be cheerful now. The travelling is at an end, and you have nothing to do but rest and amuse yourself as you please. Let me go to bed, then, answered the boy, shrinking from Catherine's salute, and he put his fingers to his eyes to remove incipient tears. Come, come, there's a good child, I whispered, leading him in. You'll make her weep, too. See how sorry she is for you. I do not know whether it was sorrow for him, but his cousin put on as sad a countenance as himself and returned to her father. All three entered and mounted to the library where tea was laid ready. I proceeded to remove Linton's cap and mantle and place him on a chair by the table, but he was no sooner seated than he began to cry afresh. My master inquired what was the matter. I can't sit on a chair sobbed the boy. Go to the sofa, then, and Ellen shall bring you some tea, answered his uncle patiently. He had been greatly tried during the journey, I felt convinced by his fretful, ailing charge. Linton slowly trailing himself off and laying down, Cathy carried a footstool and her cup to his side. At first she sat silent, but that could not last. She had resolved to make a pet of her little cousin, as she would have him to be, and she commenced stroking his curls and kissing his cheek and offering him tea in her saucer like a baby. This pleased him, for he was not much better. He dried his eyes and lightened into a faint smile. Oh, he'll do very well, said the master to me after watching them a minute. Very well, if we can keep him, Ellen. The company of a child of his own age will instill new spirit into him soon, and by wishing for strength he'll gain it. Aye, if we can keep him, I mused to myself, and saw misgivings came over me that there was slight hope of that. And then, I thought, however will that weakling live at Wuthering Heights between his father and Harriton? What playmates and instructors they'll be? Our doubts were presently decided, even earlier than I expected. I had just taken the children upstairs after tea was finished and seen Linton asleep. He would not suffer me to leave him till that was the case. I had come down and was standing by the table in the hall, lighting a bedroom candle for Mr. Edgar, when a maid stepped out of the kitchen and informed me that Mr. Heathcliff's servant, Joseph, was at the door and wished to speak with the master. I shall ask him what he wants first, 
I said in considerable trepidation. A very unlikely hour to be troubling people, and the instant they have returned from a long journey, I don't think the master can see him. Joseph had advanced through the kitchen as I uttered these words, and now presented himself in the hall. He was donned in his Sunday garments, with his most sanctimonious and sourest face, and holding his hat in one hand and his stick in the other, he proceeded to clean his shoes on the mat. Good evening, Joseph, I said coldly. What business brings you here tonight? Is Master Linton home to speak to? He answered, waving me disdainfully aside. Mr. Linton is going to bed. Unless you have something particular to say, I'm sure he won't hear it now, I continued. You'd better sit down in there and entrust your message to me. Which is his room? pursued the fellow, surveying the range of closed doors. I perceived he was bent on refusing my mediation, so very reluctantly I went up to the library and announced the unseasonable visitor, advertising that he should be dismissed till next day. Mr. Linton had no time to empower me to do so, for he mounted close at my heels and, pushing into the apartment, planted himself at the far side of the table with his two fists clapped on the head of his stick and began in an elevated tone, as if anticipating opposition. Heathcliff has sent me for his lad, and I mustn't go back without him. Edgar Linton was silent a minute. An expression of exceeding sorrow overcast his features. He would have pitied the child on his own account, but recalling Isabella's hopes and fears, and anxious wishes for her son, and her commendations of him to his care, he grieved bitterly at the prospect of yielding him up, and searched in his heart how it might be avoided. No plan offered itself. The very exhibition of any desire to keep him would have rendered the claimant more peremptory. There was nothing left but to resign him. However, he was not going to rouse him from his sleep. Tell Mr. Heathcliff, he answered calmly, that his son shall come to Wuthering Heights tomorrow. He is in bed and too tired to go the distance now. You may also tell him that the mother of Linton desired him to remain under my guardianship, and, at present, his health is very precarious. No, said Joseph, giving a thud with his prop on the floor and assuming an authoritative air. No, that means no. Heathcliff takes no account of the mother, nor you either, but he'll have his lad, and I must take him. So now you know. You shall not tonight, answered Linton decisively. Walk downstairs at once and repeat to your master what I have said. Ellen, show him down, go. And, aiding the indignant elder with a lift by the arm, he rid the room of him and closed the door. Very well, shouted Joseph as he slowly drew off. To morning, he's come hissling and thrust him out, if you dare. Chapter 6 To obviate the danger of this threat being fulfilled, Mr. Linton commissioned me to take the boy home early, on Catherine's pony, and, said he, as we shall now have no influence over his destiny, good or bad, you must say nothing of where he has gone to my daughter. She cannot associate with him hereafter, and it is better for her to remain in ignorance of his proximity, lest she should be restless and anxious to visit the heights, Merely tell her his father sent for him suddenly, and he has been obliged to leave us. Linton was very reluctant to be roused from his bed at five o'clock, 
and astonished to be informed that he must prepare for further travelling, but I softened off the matter by stating that he was going to spend some time with his father, Mr. Heathcliff, who wished to see him so much, he did not like to deter the pleasure till he should recover from his late journey. My father, he cried in strange perplexity, Mama never told me I had a father. Where does he live? I'd rather stay with Uncle. He lives a little distance from the Grange, I replied, just beyond those hills, not so far, but you may walk over here when you get hearty, and you should be glad to go home and to see him. You must try to love him, as you did your mother, and then he will love you. But why have I not heard of him before? asked Linton. Why didn't Mama and he live together as other people do? He had business to keep him in the north, I answered, and your mother's health required her to reside in the south. And why didn't Mama speak to me about him? Persevered the child. She often talked of Uncle, and I learnt to love him long ago. How am I to love Papa? I don't know him. Oh, all children love their parents, I said. Your mother, perhaps, thought you would want to be with him if she mentioned him too often. Let us make haste, an early ride on such a beautiful morning is much preferable to an hour's more sleep. Is she to go with us? he demanded. The little girl I saw yesterday. Not now, replied I. Is uncle? he continued. No, I shall be your companion there, I said. Linton sank back in his pillow and fell into a brown study. I won't go without uncle, he cried at length. I can't tell where you mean to take me. I attempted to persuade him of the naughtiness of showing reluctance to meet his father. Still, he obstinately resisted any progress towards dressing, and I had to call for my master's assistance in coaxing him out of bed. The poor thing was finally got off with several delusive assurances that his absence should be short, that Mr. Edgar and Cathy would visit him, and other promises equally ill-founded, which I invented and reiterated at intervals throughout the way. The pure heather-scented air and the bright sunshine and the gentle candour of Minnie relieved his despondency after a while. He began to put questions concerning his new home and its inhabitants with greater interest and liveliness. Is Wuthering Heights as pleasant a place as Thrustcross Grange? He inquired, turning to take a last glance into the valley whence a light mist mounted and formed fleecy cloud on the skirts of the blue. It's not so buried in trees, I replied, and it's not quite so large, but you can see the country beautifully all round, and the air is healthier for you, fresher and drier. You will perhaps think the building old and dark at first, though it is a respectable house, the next best in the neighbourhood, and you will have such nice rambles on the moors. Harriton Earnshaw, that is Miss Cathy's other cousin, and so yours in a manner, will show you all the sweetest spots, and you can bring a book in fine weather and make a green hollow your study, and now and then your uncle may join you in a walk. He does frequently walk out on the hills. And what is my father like? he asked. Is he as young and handsome as uncle? He's as young, said I, but he has black hair and eyes and looks sterner, and he is taller and bigger altogether. He'll not seem to you so gentle and kind at first, perhaps, because it's not his way. Still, 
Mind you be frank and cordial with him, and naturally he'll be fonder of you than any uncle, for you are his own. Black hair and eyes, mused Linton. I can't fancy him. Then I am not like him, am I? Not much, I answered. Not a morsel, I thought, surveying with regret the white complexion and slim frame of my companion and his large, languid eyes. His mother's eyes, save that, unless a morbid touchiness kindled them a moment, they had not a vestige of her sparkling spirit. How strange that he should never come to see Mamma and me, he murmured. Has he ever seen me? If he have, I must have been a baby. I remember not a single thing about him. Why, Master Linton, said I, three hundred miles is a great distance, and ten years seem very different in length to a grown-up person compared with what they do to you. It is probable Mr. Heathcliff proposed going from summer to summer, but never found a convenient opportunity, and now it is too late. Don't trouble him with questions on the subject. It will disturb him for no good. The boy was fully occupied with his own cogitations for the remainder of the ride, till we halted before the farmhouse garden gate. I watched to catch his impressions in his countenance. He surveyed the carved front and low-browed lattices and straggling gooseberry bushes and crooked firs and solemn intentness, and then shook his head. His private feelings entirely disapproved of the exterior of his new abode, but he had sense to postpone complaining. There might be compensation within. Before he dismounted, I went and opened the door. It was half-past six. The family had just finished breakfast. The servant was clearing and wiping down the table. Joseph stood by his master's chair telling some tale concerning a lame horse, and Harriton was preparing for the hayfield. Hello, Nelly, cried Mr. Heathcliff when he saw me. I feared I should have to come down and fetch my property myself. You've brought it, have you? Let us see what we can make of it. He got up and strode to the door. Harriton and Joseph followed in gaping curiosity. Poor Linton ran a frightened eye over the faces of the three. Surely, said Joseph after a grave inspection. He swapped with your master, and yon's his lass. Heathcliff, having stared his son into an ague of confusion, uttered a scornful laugh. God, what a beauty, what a lovely, charming thing, he exclaimed. Haven't they reared it on snails and sour milk, Nelly? Oh, <laughs> damn my soul. But that's worse than I expected, and the devil knows I was not sanguine. I bid the trembling and bewildered child get down and enter. He did not thoroughly comprehend the meaning of his father's speech, or whether it was intended for him. Indeed, he was not yet certain that the grim, sneering stranger was his father but he clung to me with growing trepidation, and on Mr. Heathcliff's taking a seat and bidding him come hither, he hid his face on my shoulder and wept. Tut, tut, said Heathcliff, stretching out a hand and dragging him roughly between his knees and then holding up his head by the chin. None of that nonsense. We're not going to hurt thee, Linton. Isn't that thy name? Thou art thy mother's child entirely. Where is my share in thee, puling chicken? He took off the boy's cap and pushed back his thick flaxen curls, felt his slender arms and his small fingers, during which examination Linton ceased crying and lifted his great blue eyes to inspect the inspector. Do you know me? asked Heathcliff, 
having satisfied himself that the limbs were all equally frail and feeble. No, said Linton with a gaze of vacant fear. You have heard of me, I dare say. No, he replied again. No? What a shame of your mother never to waken your filial regard for me. You are my son, then, I tell you, and your mother was a wicked slut to leave you in ignorance of the sort of father you possessed. Now, don't wince and colour up. Though it is something to see that you have not white blood. Be a good lad, and I'll do for you. Nelly, if you be tired, you may sit down. If not, get home again. I guess you'll report what you hear and see to the cipher at the Grange, and this thing won't be settled while you linger about it. Well, replied I, I hope you'll be kind to the boy, Mr. Heathcliff, or you'll not keep him long, and he's all you have akin in the wide world that you will ever know. Remember. I'll be very kind to him, you needn't fear, he said, laughing. Only nobody else must be kind to him. I'm jealous of monopolizing his affection. And, to begin my kindness, Joseph, bring the lad some breakfast. Harriton, you infernal calf, be gone to your work. Yes, now, he added when they were departed. My son is prospective owner of your place, and I should not wish him to die till I was certain of being his successor. Besides, he is mine, and I want the triumph of seeing my descendant fairly lord of these estates my child hiring their child to till their father's lands for wages. That is the sole consideration which can make me endure the wealth. I despise him for himself and hate him for the memories he revives. But that consideration is sufficient. He is as safe with me and shall be tended as carefully as your master tends his own. I have a room upstairs furnished for him in handsome style. I've engaged a tutor also to come three times a week, from twenty miles' distance to teach him what he pleases to learn. I've ordered Harriton to obey him, and in fact I've arranged everything with a view to preserve the superior and the gentleman in him above his associates. I do regret, however, that he so little deserves the trouble. If I wished any blessing in the world, it was to find him a worthy object of pride, and I'm bitterly disappointed with the way-faced whining wretch. While he was speaking, Joseph returned, bearing a basin of milk porridge, and placed it before Linton. He stirred round the homely mess with a look of aversion, and affirmed he could not eat it. I saw the old manservant shared largely in his master's scorn of the child, though he was compelled to retain the sentiment in his heart, because Heathcliff plainly meant his underlings to hold him in honour. "'Cannot eat it,' repeated he, peering in Linton's face and subduing his voice to a whisper for fear of being overheard. For Master Harriton never ate out else when he were a little un, and what were good enough for him is good enough for you. I'd rather think. I shan't eat it, answered Linton snappishly. Take it away. Joseph snatched up the food indignantly and brought it to us. Is there out ails the victuals? He asked, thrusting the tray under Heathcliff's nose. What should ail them? he said. Well, answered Joseph, that dainty chap says he cannot eat them, but I suppose it's to be expected his mother was just the same. We were almost too dirty to sow the corn for making her bread. Don't mention his mother to me, said the master angrily. Get him something that he can eat, that's all. What is his usual food, Nelly? 
I suggested boiled milk or tea, and the housekeeper received instructions to prepare some. Come, I reflected, his father's selfishness may contribute to his comfort. He perceives his delicate constitution and the necessity of treating him tolerably. I'll console Mr. Edgar by acquainting him with the turn Heathcliff's humour has taken. Having no excuse for lingering longer, I slipped out, while Linton was engaged in timidly rebuffing the advances of a friendly sheepdog. But he was too much on the alert to be cheated. As I closed the door, I heard a cry and a frantic repetition of the words, Don't leave me! I'll not stay here! I'll not stay here! Then the latch was raised and fell. They did not suffer him to come forth. I mounted Minnie and urged her to a trot, and so my brief guardianship ended. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Tom Reads Books podcast. If you'd like to support the show, leaving a rating and a short review on whatever podcast platform you're using really goes a long way to help us reach new listeners. Other than that, I hope you have a wonderful day, and I look forward to reading to you again very soon.